Please continue with me as we pray together. Fathers, we continue down that road to Calvary reflecting on this week. It is a holy week as we reflect on our need for holiness, our need for reminders that our lives all too often are calibrated to chaos or perfection or determination and we need our hearts calibrated to grace. This walk that we will walk with Jesus this week is a reminder, Lord, that we need your grace. Speak to us, strengthen us, strip us of the encumbrances of sin that our hearts are so easily entangled by and allow us to run with perseverance the race set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, your appointed King, the author and perfecter of our faith. Father, we desire to walk with him even to the cross to see that he bore penalty for our sin, the sin that we deserve. But we anticipate the resurrection and the hope of eternal life in celebrating Easter. Lord, may we be a church that not only strengthens believers, but spreads the good news that Jesus loves, that Jesus lives, that Jesus is coming again. And we pray that Thursday night during our dramatic presentation by Marquise Laughlin, that, Father, that friends and neighbors and family members will hear in that presentation the beautiful story of the redemptive work of Jesus. We pray for our Saturday children's outreach at Westminster School as well. And thank you for John Fender and Luke Niday and our medical campus outreach staff, our campus outreach staff, International Link, Hope for Augusta. We're so privileged, Father, to be a church on mission here. We're also privileged to be joining hands with your missionaries in the church around the world. We want this to be a house of prayer for all nations. Make us prayerful for the gospel to go forth. Make us thoughtful for our missionaries. We thank you so much, Father, for your faithfulness in providing for the missions offering, monies that will take the gospel to the Middle East among Muslims and uh, South Sudan and work in Greece and Scotland and Mexico and Clarkston. We also, Lord, thank you that we are ascending church and we pray for those that are preparing to go to hard places. We thank you for our dear brother and sister that we can't even mention their name because they're going to a place where identifying openly as a missionary would be a risk for them and the church. We ask with celebration that this week as they travel, you would protect them, they would arrive safely before Easter. And we ask you to use them even as we send our Dear brother and sister, we ask you to use them to strengthen the work that you're doing in South Asia. We also pray for those that are sick, and we ask you to strengthen those that are battling illness and cancer especially. We do pray for those who are mourning the loss of loved ones, strengthen them as well. All these things we pray in the powerful name of Christ, and when we pray, we use the words that Christ taught his disciples as we say together, Our Father, who art in heaven, 
hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. In the next few moments, we will be passing the peace. And we realize that the only way that we can pass the peace is because the peace of God has already been given to us. So during the collecting of the offering, I invite you to pass the peace with enthusiasm because freely you have received and freely you give. I'll invite the ushers to come forward at this time. Uh, As we um, worship, we remind ourselves that giving is an act of worship. And if you choose to, you may give to our ushers. There are three additional ways to to give. There's a QR code in your bullet, in your seats, in, in your bulletin. You can use that to give. Uh, You can mail your check or text the amount. You'll also notice you have an opportunity ways to uh, give prayer requests. You can use the QR code or use this card. This is prayer requests. We want to hear from you and pray for you. Just a few announcements before we pass the piece. This week is a full week as we anticipate the celebration of the passion of Christ with grateful hearts acknowledge that Jesus Christ died for our sins. And then on Easter Sunday, the celebration of the resurrection of Jesus Christ with anticipatory joy as we look back to the fact that he was resurrected and look forward to his second coming. Uh, On Wednesday, we have sacred spaces. That's at noon. That's always an excellent time to come and spend time um, meditating on God's faithfulness. I highly encourage you, if you've not gone to one of these, please make a special effort to come. That's here in this sanctuary, Wednesday at noon. Steve Pruitt will be the guest uh, um, musician. Monday Thursday service at noon. Uh, I invite you to come and then sun- that evening at 7 o'clock for the Gospel of John dramatization presentation. Please don't miss that. Two services on Friday, Good Friday, noon and 7 p.m. At 7 p.m. we have communion. And then please be back here with us as we celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ. As we pass the peace, you will hear music playing. When the music starts to play, please join us as we sing Hosanna, loud Hosanna. The peace of the Lord be with you always. Let's stand and pass the peace.
And turn your Bibles to Matthew chapter 21, Matthew uh, chapter 21 is found on page 1532 in the Bible provided for you in the pew, and as you heard in the announcements, today we began our Holy Week emphasis looking in the book of Matthew, we take a break from our study in the life of David, but Matthew introduces Jesus Christ as the son of David, and this whole gospel reveals that great David's greater son has arrived in the holy city for this celebration. We'll look today at the king who saves his people. On Thursday, we'll look at this appointed king who serves his people. Friday, the appointed king who suffers for his people, and then Sunday morning in celebration, we'll reflect on our appointed king who secures our victory. You'll notice that today's sermon focuses on both the triumphal entry and the cleansing of the temple. Matthew draws attention to the important connection there. You'll know that that actually took place on different days. And Luke and Mark point out that the triumphal entry is on a Sunday, and then the cleansing of the temple is on Monday. But Matthew draws connections here, and you'll see in his reference to Psalm 118 the importance of seeing the connection between the triumphal entry as well as the cleansing of the temple. You'll hear in both of those uh, occasions the phrase Hosanna, which is translated directly God save us, God save us. And we're going to look at this idea that the triumphal entry and the cleansing of the temple teaches us what does it mean for God to save us? Can we know that we're saved? What does the life of the saved person 
look like? We'll learn as we read that even though Jesus is about to face death, he's offering and declaring life. His death that we might experience life and be saved. Matthew chapter 21, beginning in verse 1. As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethpage on the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and at once you will find a donkey tied there with her colt by her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, tell him that the Lord needs them, and he will send them right away. This took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. Say to the daughter of Zion, See, your king comes to you, gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. The disciples went and did as Jesus had instructed them. They brought the donkey and the colt, placed their cloaks on them, and Jesus sat on them. A very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road, while others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. The crowds that went ahead of him and those that followed shouted, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. When Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred and asked, Who is this? The crowds answered, this is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. Jesus entered the temple area and drove out all who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves. It is written, he said to them, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you are making it a den of robbers. The blind and the lame came to him at the temple and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the teachers of the law saw the wonderful things he did, and the children shouting in the temple area, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. Do you hear what these children are saying, they asked him? Yes, replied Jesus. Have you never read from the lips of children and infants you have ordained praise? And he left them and went out of the city to Bethany, where he spent the night. This is the word of God. Thanks be to you, O God. Pray with me now. Father, we do ask that you would open our eyes, that we might see the Savior and his salvation in a new and fresh way. And if there's anyone here that doesn't know in a personal way the Savior, would today be the day of their visitation? Lord, as you wept over Jerusalem, you longed to gather those. We're told many would not. We pray, Lord, that you would touch hearts by your grace and change lives for Jesus' sake as we celebrate his salvation. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. British theologian and pastor John Stott once wrote about Palm Sunday that this is an incredible parable of the lifelong mismatch between what we desire and want and what God provides. I'll say it again. Stott wrote that Palm Sunday is an incredible parable 
of the lifelong mismatch of what we long for and want and yet what God provides. The parallel is to our lives today is so obvious. They did not understand the Savior, therefore they did not understand salvation. And that's our problem as well. All too often we don't understand the Savior, therefore we don't understand salvation. And yet in both the triumphal entry and in the cleansing of the temple, what was repeated is this phrase, save us, save us, save us. It's the heart cry of every Christian person. But I'll tell you, it's the heart cry of every living person. It may not be personal, it may not be directed, but every person's heart cry, when they come up against life's difficulties, is something like this. Save me. Provide a way out. Show me some meaning and purpose for this awful experience in my life. You see, God designed us to live upward lives, to live Godward lives, to live lives full of this salvation that we hear shouted in the streets and in the temple. And yet, because of our turning away from God, we only cry, save, help, and we've lost the personal nature of that cry. It's a man-centered lifestyle. Even those who claim to be Christians oftentimes try to solve most of their problems through hard work, determinism, and sometimes scheming. It is such an irony here that these religious leaders are plotting, they're scheming, they're unhappy that outsiders have been brought into worship. They've set up a courts uh, marketplace where they're selling and trading and keeping the Gentiles from worship. As Stott says, it's an incredible parable of the mismatch, seeking what we think we need, not embracing what God has provided. But here Jesus rides into Jerusalem. Jesus walks into the temple as the appointed king. And during Holy Week, we will see this appointed king. In today's text, he is the anticipated king. He's the authoritative king. But he's the astonishing king. We'll see that in the text. We'll also see what's required of us. We must believe in him to be saved. We must believe in him to experience the salvation that he's brought us. First, let's look at this anticipation. Matthew wants us to see that Jesus has been anticipated since the fall. It's been thousands of years since the Garden of Eden where man turned away from God. Don't you often wonder why Jesus didn't arrive in Genesis chapter 3? I wonder, why did Jesus not arrive when Adam and Eve listened to the voice of the serpent instead of listening to the voice and command of their heavenly Father? But for thousands of years, God has been preparing the people of God 
to anticipate the arrival of this Messiah, that God's good purposes for the world are so great and his salvation is so extensive. He's been preparing a people to receive this king. Over 15 times, Matthew quotes scriptures that prophesy that this king will come as God's appointed king and Messiah. He's given us clues from Psalm 118, which was read during the Psalter lesson. Psalm 118 is the most quoted psalm in all the New Testament. You probably recognize phrases like the stone which the builders rejected and this is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. And you recognize this Hosanna, save us uh, to the king. But also Matthew references Zechariah 9, Isaiah 56, Isaiah 62, and Psalm 8. Matthew wants us to understand that this appointed king is to be anticipated. All of scripture reveals God's revelation, who he is, and his salvation, how he plans to save. So all the Old Testament, its history and its laws, is to prepare the people of God to understand who God is and how he saves. And the focus of that salvation experience is expressed in the tabernacle sacrifices and then when the people of God moved into the holy city Jerusalem in the promised land the temple that was established and in that temple in the holy of holies once a year the high priest would make a sacrifice for the sins of the people and anticipate there there would be a perfect lamb a spotless lamb that would take away the sins of the world. This is this anticipation that's taken place for thousands of years. But Matthew says the clues that were given were prophecies. We're told, those scholars tell us, that there's over 300 prophecies in the Old Testament, indirect or direct, that point to Jesus Christ. Over 300 prophecies that were given over thousands of years. It's one of the signs of God's Messiah. Mathematician Peter Stoner of California hypothetically just figured out the probability of eight prophecies that were given in the Old Testament being fulfilled in any one person. Just eight. Now there's over 300 direct or indirect prophecies uh, that point to this Messiah. He said the probability of just eight being fulfilled is the probability of one times 10 to the 17th power. That's one with 17 zeros behind it is the probability that just eight of these would be fulfilled in any one person. He says it's like stacking silver dollars in the state of Texas, two feet deep, and marking a silver dollar with a red cross and scattering it somewhere in the midst of all those silver dollars. Then blindfolding a person and saying, your assignment is to travel throughout Texas and find that silver dollar that has a red cross on it. That's how unlikely it is that this 
probability would be fulfilled in any one person. What's God trying to tell us here? God is telling his people, I have a plan to save the world. I've had a plan from the beginning to save the world. It's a very detailed plan. The world exists according to my plan. Man can't thwart that plan. I follow that plan and I arrive when I mean to. When Jesus goes into the holy city, he's healing. He's receiving, he's receiving praise. This is different than in his earth, early ministry when he was declaring, don't tell anyone that I've healed you. It's not yet my time to go up. What is taking place? The time has arrived. God's plan for saving the world is moving into its very last moments. Jesus said that in Matthew 5. He said, I did not come to abolish the law or the prophets. I came to fulfill them. And here he is fulfilling them. Imagine what a difference it would make in your life today if you just believe God has a plan for this world. God has a plan for me in this world. Can you imagine what a difference it would make to you in experiencing your salvation? First, Matthew wants us to see this appointed king is anticipated. But secondly, he wants us to see he's authoritative. It's unbelievable to think that the religious scholars who'd spent their lives studying the Old Testament missed it. It's even unbelievable that at this moment, the crowds will miss it. And yet, Jesus, by the authority given God, is entering into the holy city to accomplish God's plan. They were looking for salvation, but from a military leader, from a political leader, someone who would push back the oppression of Rome's evil thumb that sat on their throat. And yet, here, he comes as the authoritative leader. Four different places you see Jesus' authority being exercised. First, in how he assigns the disciples to find the donkey. He says, go into the city, Bethany, and inquire. It's hard to know if Jesus is speaking in uh, his foreknowledge being on display, that he knows where this donkey is going to be, or if just he, his declaration if anyone asks you, tell them the Lord has need of it. But he's clearly declaring his authority as the one who controls circumstances and situations and even animals. Why does he bring the, the cult as well as the mother? Because this is a donkey that's never been ridden. And so even Jesus sees that that donkey is going to need some care and guidance of his mother there because he's the authority over all creation. He's the authority over all circumstances. Secondly, we see that he walks into um, the city and he receives praise and adoration that would only, would only be exclusive to God himself. He allows himself to be worshipped. This is blasphemy in the Jewish mindset, and yet Jesus, he knows his Jewish Old Testament, declares that he is worthy to receive this worship. 
The third thing that we see is he has authority over sin and disease. He heals the lame and the blind. Jesus has been declaring and showing this authority over demons and disease. But now, in the temple, he declares that he is the authority. He has power over disease. And then lastly, he calls this temple my house. He treats the, the, the temple workers as if he's in charge of them. He rearranges the furniture. He declares... This is my house, and what takes place here must reflect my character. You see, early in his ministry, he was in the shadows. He was regularly saying, my time has not yet come. But here he declares, my authority is to be seen to all. Now, this was not a scene that was unexpected or having never been experienced by uh, Jews in the holy city of Jerusalem. 200 years earlier, Judas and Simon Maccabees had put together a guerrilla army and they had thrown out of the city uh, the king uh, Antiochus Epiphanes and his army who had marched into the city and desecrated the temple. And this small group of Jewish warriors that pushed the enemies out had been received back into the city with celebration as they rode in on a donkey. They went into the temple and cleansed the temple. It's the actual ceremony that Hanukkah is used to celebrate in the Jewish calendar. It's the Maccabean revolt that threw off the enemies of God's people and reestablished the cleansing of the temple. They knew the symbolism, and yet they still missed it. They missed it because though he was anticipated, they did not understand that he was authoritative. And that's because his salvation is astonishing. It's unexpected. It's not what we would see. You see, this king delivers and saves, but he delivers and saves in unexpected ways. Remember what John Stott says, the parable here is this lifelong mismatch that we experience between what we expect and want and what he delivers and how he saves. They wanted a political leader. They wanted a military leader. And yet in Matthew 1, we're told that the angel told Joseph, call his name Jesus, for he will save his people of their sins. Jesus was to conquer sin and death, and that was his assignment given by God, and they missed it. They misunderstood the kind of king that he would be. He was unexpected. Zechariah says that he's a righteous king, he's a humble king, he's a servant king. I think it's probably more helpful to think about uh, that uh, prophecy as Jesus is gentle and generous. Unlike the other kings, he's gentle and he's generous, and he comes to save by sharing his generosity. Wasn't the only time a king of Israel had ridden in to Jerusalem on a donkey? David, in his old age, had taken one of his donkeys, and in First Kings 1, we're told that he placed Solomon on that donkey, and he rolled into Jerusalem to declare that he was now the king. Zadok the priest and Nathan the prophet 
accompanied him, they blew the trumpets and they declared, God, save this king, save Solomon. But that was not the purpose of this king, not to save himself, but to save his people. He was generous, he was righteous, he was humble, he was bringing peace. And here's where they've been mistaken. It's where we are often mistaken. We think, if God will solve my biggest problem, then I'll know that he loves me. But if God won't take care of my biggest problem, then how can I ever trust him with any part of my lives? And they missed it. And we miss it. And all too often in our experience of God, we miss it because the biggest problem is to have our sin dealt with. The biggest problem is to be forgiven. The biggest problem is to have our relationship with God reestablished. The biggest problem is to have security in eternal life and the life to come. Romans 8, 31 and 32 says it this way. He who did not spare his only son, but delivered him up for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? Paul is saying that salvation, when it comes to your heart, begins to flood your heart with a kind of freedom and liberality because God has dealt with your biggest problem. And if he's dealt with your biggest problem, then you can let go of worrying about the smaller problems. Early in Matthew, Jesus asked the question, who do men say that I am? And the disciples said, well, some say that you're John the Baptist, some say uh, you're a prophet. Then Jesus said, who do you say that I am? And Peter said, well, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. And, and Jesus said to Peter, on that declaration, on that confession, on Peter, this rock I'll build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against me. And then Jesus began to share his plan. We must go up to Jerusalem. There I will be betrayed. There, I will be judged unjustly. There, I'll be arrested. There, I'll be beaten and tortured. There, I'll be crucified. And then I'll rise on the third day. And what did Peter say? You will not be treated that way. And that will not happen. He rebukes Jesus. And Jesus says, you're thinking like Satan. You're falling to the schemes of the evil one. Peter, get behind me. Even Peter missed it. All God's people miss it because we think that the way that we know God loves us is if he takes care of what we think is our biggest problem. And what he says is that my salvation starts by taking care of your biggest problem. That's why we're called to believe. Jesus comes to solve our biggest problem. You remember that Pilate will ask Jesus, are you the king of the Jews? And he will say, my kingdom is not of this world. For if my kingdom was of this world, then I would come and my, those that follow me would come with swords and we would fight. But Jesus is fighting a different battle. He's fighting an invisible battle of the evil that destroys our souls. Jesus would be led to the slaughter. The one would die for the many. And it transforms our lives into lives full of hope and joy. 
You can live lives full of hope and joy, even when things are not going as you desire. You can live lives of hope and joy, even when you don't understand why God does not deliver you from the difficulty that you're facing. You can live with joy because you're saved. Romans 10 says, whoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. And believing in Jesus begins when you turn from self and you give over control to him. And then you grow as a Christian as you continually turn from self and trust in him. As you grow in trust, you grow in experiencing your salvation. It starts with acceptance when you surrender your will to him. But then it grows in alignment as you surrender your life to him in obedience. And it moves you to a person of adoration where your life is lived for the purpose of praising his name. Surrendering to God is not an easy thing, but it's not giving up. Surrendering to God is letting go. It's letting go of controlling your life. It's letting go of demanding that you know best. It's letting go of declaring conditionality in your relationship with God. Surrender says, no conditions on you, God. You accepted me with no conditions. My grandchildren like to ride in a car, a little toy car in our house that my wife picked up somewhere on the side of the road. But... Um, uh, we wait for them to come over and they love this car because it has a steering wheel. And if I'm behind the car pushing the car and I'm guiding the car, it goes pretty much wherever they tell me that they want to go. And they're just so proud that they're controlling that car with that steering wheel, except they're not. What's moving that car and guiding that car is their grandfather. But it makes them feel so proud to believe that they're in control. Well, you know, after a while in your life, you're not proud of being in control. You're either terrified or you're disappointed for where your life has turned and how little progress you've made in your life. But it's really a mistake to think that we can control or, ch or change much of anything in our life. We can't control the weather. We can't control or change other people. We can't change our circumstances. We can't change how much energy we have for the day. We can't change our health. We have no control over almost everything in our lives. You had no control over the country that you were born in. You had no control over the family that you were given. Mostly, this life is not about control. It's about surrender. And surrender to the right things brings life, and surrender to the wrong things brings death. You know, during the pandemic, I had several pastors calling me and just asking, how did you get through the pandemic, and how did you survive? And I said, well, not very well. He said, did, did, how did the church hold together? And I said, well, we were a mess. We were huddled together explaining how little control we had but just thankful that we had one another 
And then we woke up one day on the other side of it. Now, some people tell me it's coming back again. I don't know. But I want you to know that God delivered us. God took care of us. We had very little control over what was happening to us. We just embraced him. Can you imagine how transformative your life would be if you believe this? God has a plan for this world and for me. Jesus is the appointed king, and he has the authority to accomplish all of God's plan for me. And three, he will deliver me, but he will deliver me in unexpected ways. What would your life be? You would move like we move through the pandemic. First, we became restful. I feel like that was the first phase of our life together. We became restful. Okay, God, you're in control. But then at some point, we became hopeful. We began to realize that God is not watching the world careen through the universe in chaos. He's bringing about his purposes. And then we began to be joyful and expectant because life now was discovering what God had planned for us. I'll tell you that I do worry a lot in my role as pastor here. I worry a lot in my role as a father. But I don't worry that God is not in control. I don't worry that God does not have a plan. I don't worry that Jesus has accomplished everything that we need to fulfill God's plan. What I worry about is that it might not go my way. It might not be what I want. It might not be what I think is best. Please forgive me for being such a shallow, self-centered servant of Christ. I'm sure glad it doesn't go my way. <laughs> I'm sure glad that God's grace is stronger and has led us to restfulness, to hopefulness, as well as to joyfulness. I've watched this in a family in our church that is leaving this week for the mission field. They'll be serving in South Asia, and they've been waiting on the Lord. I've been watching for over a year as they've waited on serving the Lord in a very hard place. It's taught me so much about being restful, about being hopeful, about being joyful. This week I was with, Sandra and I were with uh, our family, but we also spent some time with our spiritual mother. This is a woman that began to disciple us when we were new believers. And she just radiates restfulness and hopefulness and joyfulness. She's retiring from her dermatology practice, 76 years of age. And uh, she said, you know, my life didn't really turn out the way that I expected. I've received and embraced the life God has given me, but it's nothing about what I wanted. And I just can't make sense out of it. Can you talk with me a little bit about it? I was really in awe because I thought I've watched her life as a restful, hopeful, joyful Christian. And I said to her, I wonder in heaven if we're going to discover the greatest influence 
that we ever had on the kingdom of God is we just were happy in Jesus when nothing around us would declare that we should be happy. I wonder if the greatest reward in heaven, as I was talking to Ken McCurt about it, the last shall be first and the first will be last, is ordinary people that just love Jesus for Jesus' sake. They were just happy in Jesus, even though there was nothing in their circumstances to point them to joy. I told her I have the privilege of pastoring a whole congregation of these kind of people. You humble me. You teach me. You point me heavenward and Godward as you share your hurts, as you share your fears, and even as you share your joys. One of you last week did tell me, Mike, you can do something for us, though, especially in worship services. I said, okay, what? She said, will you smile more? She said, you have a beautiful smile, but you don't smile very much. And I said, well, please forgive me. I'm just working too hard to, in my perfectionistic tendencies, to do everything right. Please forgive me. But I promise, I'm going to smile more. Listen, the appointed king has walked into Jerusalem, excuse me, into the temple, having rid, rode on a donkey. He's declared that he brings salvation. And the judgment that he brings, he'll turn upon himself. We'll experience that this week. He will take on the judgment that we deserve. And we will experience liberation. I know I'm a little over time, but I would be remiss not to read Revelation 19. I, I must read this. Because the next time this king rides into Jerusalem. It won't be on a donkey. And he'll ride in Jerusalem in judgment. It's Revelation 19. I saw heaven standing open, and there before me was a white horse whose rider is called Faithful and True. With justice he judges and makes war. His eyes are like blazing fire. On his head are many crowns. He has a name written on him that no one knows but he himself. He's dressed in a robe dipped in blood and his name is the word of God. The armies of heaven were following him, riding on white horses and dressed in fine linen, white and clean. Out of his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter he treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh, he has this name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. We will revere him. We will recognize him. We will praise him. We won't hide from him. We will run to him. He is the appointed king. He is the anticipated authoritative, astonishing King of kings and Lord of lords. And if you're saved, he is your Lord. Let's pray together. King Jesus, ride on in majesty. Ride into our hearts when we doubt, when we worry, when we embrace our circumstances instead of you. 
Lord Jesus, forgive us when we're small-minded, when we think that the world is only acceptable if it meets our standards. King Jesus, do your plan in our lives and in this world. Fulfill your mission. We will glorify and praise you. And Father, if there's anyone here today that is outside of the protection of King Jesus, today is their visitation. Today is a day of grace where the judgment falls on the Savior, not on the sinner. Lord, we pray that your grace would touch hearts and that you would bring people to Christ. Use this church to be a house of prayer for the nations. We pray in Jesus' powerful name. Amen. Our closing hymn is hymn 295, Crown Him with Many Crowns.